The Bible says, for whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes without saying, but on the eve of Labor Day, we should say again that that verse was not first heard by religious workers, people that worked in churches, missionaries. It was heard first by shopkeepers, cobblers, cooks, sometimes students, sometimes retired, even slaves. That's who heard it first. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. That's hard to do today because when we leave here, the place where most of us will go, whether the neighborhood, whether dorms, whether teams, boardrooms, living rooms, kitchens, factories, it feels like the place has been overrun by chaos. There are deadlines, there's agendas, there's egos, there's relationship pathways that are deeply flawed. And when we get into those places and we have to fulfill that deadline, write that paper, get this done at that time, meet that standard, fill that quota, it doesn't feel like God has assigned these things. It feels like somebody else did this. So it's really hard to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one of the more embarrassing parts of our history in the United States uh, is back in 1944, at the peak of World War II, when the U.S. government comprised a list of tactics that they hoped would confuse the societies in enemy countries. It was a little manual called the Simple Sabotage Field Manual. It has since been declassified. You can download it if you want. What this was, was the U.S. government trying to work with U.S. sympathizers in foreign countries to act in certain ways, whether they were at work, they were in their neighborhood, uh, they were running clubs. The idea was that we want to destabilize and create confusion in all of the institutions of enemy countries. So they divided the little manual up into sections. One section is even called um, General Devices for Lowering Morale and Creating Confusion. I've read that manual for your benefit, and I've pulled a few things out of it. And see if you recognize these. Insist on doing everything through channels. Never permit shortcuts. Make speeches. Talk as frequently as possible. And at great length. 
when possible, refer all matters to committees for, quote, further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible, never less than five. In making work assignments, always sign out the unimportant jobs first. See that the important jobs are assigned to inefficient workers with poor machines. Contrive as many interruptions to your work as you can. Think cell phones and pop-ups. Do your work poorly and blame it on bad tools, machinery, or equipment. My favorite, be as irritable and quarrelsome as possible without getting yourself into trouble. Now, the good news is that these tactics worked swimmingly. The, the bad news is that they backfired. It's, they didn't just affect the institutions of our enemies. They affected our institutions. In fact, probably where you live, work, whatever club you belong to, has been overrun by some of these tactics. Now, the thing I'd, I'd like to stress, I think, is that the problem is never a single individual and the problem is never a single behavior. That's pretty important because whenever we get into a situation that we think is going pretty bad, the first thing we do is say, well, that person would only change that action, well, then everything would be better. But that generally isn't the case because the people that are involved in the chaos are not themselves trying to create chaos. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, how can I make work and life as miserable as possible? My goal, my calling in life is to be a jerk. No one, no one does this. What happens is they get into systems and structures surrounded by responsibilities, agendas, deadlines, pressure, stress, and once they are subjected to that environment, it calls these things out of them. What I'm saying is, you can put even Christians together in Christian organizations, and when they get together, something else that is not any one of us, but it is all of us, and it's different from us, it's like an it. I don't even know what it is. But something else rises whenever humans engage with one another and with their work. This is why the principal of a school in Marion tells me one day in her office that even though her school is filled with Christians who are practicing Christians, some of which she says, go to my church. But she says when they get together, it's a toxic work environment. Now, how do you figure that? Every one of us come from churches where the right behaviors are stressed. Every one of us profess to be trying to live according to the fruit of the Spirit with more or less success. But somehow, when we get together, the relational pathways, the egos, the agendas, the stress, the quotas, all of it just ratchets up and it overwhelms us. 
and we start behaving in ways we wouldn't dream and in ways we defend adamantly. That's why I'm stressing this. Because I believe the calling of every practicing Christian is to transform not only the people in these jobs and in these living places, it is to transform the systems itself. It is to transform the pathways, the agendas, the structures, the systems. The calling is to see in ourselves things that contribute to it whenever we get together and to get it out of us, and then to open up better, more redemptive places to live. Our calling is to help God steward the earth. It is to do our work as if it were His, because it is His. Our places of living and our places of work are the places where God gets his stuff done. That is our calling. So often when Christians talk about faith and work, we focus only on the individuals who work in that space. It's as if we say, well, the place where I live and the place where I work is simply a platform for making more and better disciples. And that may be true. It is true. But there is a call for us, church, to disciple the places itself. The structures themselves. The agendas, the egos, the culture itself. has been infected. Are you there? I believe this starts with every one of us discovering our vocation. I don't mean our occupation. One of the tragedies is that in the last few years, your vocation or your discipline, your career, as so many of you are getting ready to launch into a career, you're preparing now for a career or for a field, a domain. One of the worst things that's happened is that we have confused that career or that job with a vocation. They're not the same thing. Your vocation is not your occupation. The word vocation, vocare, or vocatio in Latin, literally means voice. It means to hear a voice. So you can pursue a career without ever hearing a voice. You can get a job and make a ton of money but not because you heard a voice. 
When 75% of all freshmen checking into universities right now say the reason they choose the discipline is either A, they love the work, or B, they can make a lot of money, they're not hearing a voice. The vocation is our response to a voice inside of our career. In fact, what's happening in our country right now is people with incredible jobs and opportunities, they have lost the voice. Just look at education. I'm going to sit down for a while. Is that all right? Just look at, just look at education right now. Why is it that so many teachers come out of universities fired up to change the world? They last four or five years, maybe, and they start looking for shade. They look for some other role. I'll be an assistant. I'll be a coach. I'll be a principal. Dear God, anything but the classroom. Why is it that physicians talk to me and say, I have given my life to healing the body, but Steve, I spend three-fourths of my day filling out forms for the insurance company and for the government? Why is it that people going into athletics, charged up, ready to change all of these lives, last a few years, and then they start saying, I just don't want to deal with the ego anymore. People are starting businesses and getting four or five years into it. They're hugely successful. They're making six, sometimes seven figures a year, and they'll quit. They'll come in their 30s and say, Is there more than this? I have in my 30s what my daddy had at 60. Tell me that there is more to business than just making a huge profit. Do you see what's happening here? People have surrounded themselves with very lucrative and successful jobs and careers, but somewhere in the mix, they have lost the voice. Maybe it was there but it's gone. It got covered up with layers of agenda and reports and systems and quotas. Are you guys there? Because you're just staring at me right now. It's like, what on earth are you saying? I think we need to hear a voice. So that no matter what we do, it's out of that voice. It's what happens when people retire. They lose their job. They think they've lost their purpose. Because for so long, their purpose has been their job. And now that one is gone, what am I going to do? If there was a way to hear a voice and to separate it from the stuff that you do and say it gives rise to those things, but it is not those things. It's more primal than that. 
And it comes from deep within you. And it comes from God himself. All right, I'll say it. That's right. Amen. Good. Thank you, guys. So this has me thinking. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought there was a bell. This has me thinking about Moses. Moses... uh, Moses is an hourly worker, Exodus chapter 3. In fact, he's living, uh, he's living as an Israeli. He's living as an Israelite inside of Egypt, which is extremely harsh. Five times in Exodus chapter 1, it says that the working conditions in Israel, the words used are bitter, hard, uh, oppressive, harsh. So the environment itself is a lot like the simple sabotage manual is working beautifully. And one day Moses is, well, he's in the wilderness. He's tending sheep. He's a shepherd. So he's got sheep, but the sheep he's tending are not even his sheep. So he's an hourly worker. He's basically taking care of somebody else's property. And he has them on the backside of a mountain called Horeb. And, and there's, there are flats, there are steps as you climb that mountain. And it's in these steps or these flats where the grass is especially lush. And so shepherds would frequently lead their sheep into these there's a reason I'm telling you this, into these steps. And there on the backside of the mountain, while he is tending his sheep, Moses hears a voice. And he looks over, and the bush is on fire. He's not surprised that the bush caught fire, because it apparently in that part of the world, it wasn't uncommon because of the climate and the region for some bushes to spontaneously combust. He's surprised that even though the bush is on fire, it's not burning up. And Moses thinks to himself, what kind of fire is it that can possess something without destroying it? So he says to himself, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush is not consumed. And when he goes over, he hears a voice coming from out of the bush. And the voice, it says, is an angel of the Lord. I can argue, and I will in some other day, that that angel literally is the Holy Spirit himself. Isaiah and Haggai in later works refer to the angel in the book of Exodus that's the Holy Spirit himself. So here's what I'm telling you. He walks over, he sees the bushes on fire, but it's not consumed, and the Holy Spirit speaks from inside of that bush, and it knows his name. Whatever it is, it knows him. It says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. That doesn't mean over here. It means I'm fully present. You have my attention. And the voice says, Don't come any closer. 
and take off your shoes because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Moses speechless. So the voice continues and says, I am the God of your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He knows their names. Then the voice says, I have seen the misery that my people are in. I have heard their cries. I am concerned about their suffering. And here's the good news. I have come down to rescue them. Mm. You imagine living and working in a condition that is harsh, oppressive, and cruel, and you hear a voice that says, I've seen you, I've heard you, I'm concerned about what's happening to you, and I have come down to rescue you. That is good news, yes? The bad news is, he says, and I'm choosing you. Well, Moses is overwhelmed. He feels immediately inadequate to do this. Moses says, who am I? And the Lord says, I will be with you, but you must go. And for the next few minutes, Moses and God are arguing back and forth. And you guys, it is in this argument that we can see what is happening to us and maybe we can hear each one of us our own vocation. We can hear that voice rise from within us. Few observations. First, the place where Moses hears that voice is in the middle of his work. He is not on the mountain. He is not in a temple. And he is not at an altar. He is in the middle of doing his job in the wilderness when he hears God come down and call it holy ground. Don't minimize that. Because even today, some of you have in your mind there is such a thing as sacred space and secular space. What you may not know is whenever God touches down, that space is holy wherever that is. And that can happen in the place where you work. What I mean is you can go to work tomorrow and do a job you consider mundane, even boring, even below you, and you could still hear a voice. God could invade the workspace. Observation number two. And when he does, he is always looking for a person. It's it's never an invitation. Hey, who wants to sign up to change the world? You want to be a world changer? It's none of that. This is the Almighty God on the hunt with one person in the crosshairs such that he uses his first name 
And you get the idea that if Moses refuses, there is no plan B. Not right away. This is not an invitation, it's a summons. You don't accept this. You obey it. Or you don't decline, you disobey it. You guys, you may not have heard it yet, but there will come a time in your life where you will be in a room with God and he will speak to you with such clarity and you will know clearly what you are to do next. You won't know everything, but you'll know what you are to do next. And the only alternative for you will be to obey it. Which leads to the third and last observation. That'll be really hard for you because you will feel inadequate. And Moses feels inadequate. So let's be clear about this. When Moses hears the voice of God and says, I am coming to set my people free and I'm choosing you to lead this new movement, just so we're clear, Moses is not excited about this. Moses is not, what would you say, passionate about this. Moses does not feel that this is right in his gift mix. Moses doesn't feel like he's been, how do we say it, preparing for this all my life. This is right up my alley. I can see myself doing that. The future opening before me. Thank God. None of that is happening here. Like some of you, uh, I've read books that talk about discovering your why. You know, the finding the purpose, that thing that makes your heart sing. Now, if they say, the thing that makes your heart sing, the place where your deepest joy meets the world's greatest need. Boom, right there is my calling. Oh, man, thank you. And I mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. These books have helped me find my place in life. They have helped me find my seat on the bus, honestly. Because if they, I mean, I'll end up doing a hundred things I'm awful at, except for those things. But just so we're clear, this is not that. Because the call of God is not a journey in your self-actualization. The call of God is not about you at all. The call of God is about what God is doing in this world, and you happen to be in the line of fire, you lucky person. That's what the call of God is. This is why you're always overwhelmed. You're like, <laughs> that's just way over my pay grade. Yeah. And for the record, Moses says all of these things. He'll say exactly what you would say. He'll argue that this is not his identity. This is not his authority. And this is outside of his capacity. He'll say, this is not my identity. He'll say, who am I? And then he'll say, I don't have the authority, which is, they won't listen. And then he'll say, I don't have the capacity, which is, 
I can't talk. <laughs> Leaders have to be able to talk. And I stutter. I'm clumsy with words. That's what some of you say. And for the record, and this is the beautiful part, God does not argue with him. And he won't argue with you. God never looks at Moses and says, oh, come on, man, believe in yourself, buddy. Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Buck up, none of that. What God basically says is, you're right. You're right. You aren't the right person. And you don't have the right position, the number of followers, the right education. You're not the right number on the Enneagram. All of that's true. <laughs> and you're right. You're not gifted for this. Dude, you are two left feet. You're not bad. You're awful. But here's what God does. Rather than leaving him in that space, God says, for everything you're using right now as a defense mechanism to what I'm asking you to do, I will give you something that mitigates that problem. I'm not telling you the problem isn't real. It is real. But I'm telling you it's not the last word. I will do something myself that will overwhelm that problem. You say, who am I? Moses, who are you? <laughs> who am I? I will be with you, but you must go. This is not about you. You say that you don't have the authority. You say people won't listen to you but I will teach you how to speak. I will tell you what to say. I will tell you what to do. You don't have to know this today. You will learn it as you go, but you must go. You say you don't have the capacity. You're not gifted. Moses, what do you have? What is that in your hand? Looks like a staff. All right. We'll use that. You're always talking about what you can't do, what you're not good at. Let's start with what you can do and what you are good at. Trivial as that may seem to you. And let me just use that, Moses. Finally, when Moses has run out of excuses, <laughs> he decides with the help of his brother to go into the thing he knows nothing about, the thing way too big for him, but he knows when he goes that there is a fire in his gut. That'll last him for the rest of his life. And that's where you come in. I wonder how many right now are pursuing only a career 
because you haven't heard a voice. I'm not asking you to change your occupation. You shouldn't. Maybe. I'm asking you to change your preoccupation. I'm asking you to do the same thing you're doing or that you're preparing to do, only do it for a different reason. Do it because underneath you've heard a voice. And that is the voice of God saying, I am on a mission to take hold of this world and to redeem the places the systems, the people, the agendas that are badly fallen. If I could do this without you, I've chosen not to. And that's why we're talking. That's what I hope you will hear this morning. The voice of God underneath everything you want to be in your life. Only it's one thing not a hundred. And everything you do in your careers is in pursuit of that one thing. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning. Maybe nobody. I hope I am. I'm talking to me. This is a call for each one of us to give ourselves fully not to the work but to the voice that in mind I've gone through scripture and I've found passages that talk to us about doing that I want to read these over you as a benediction but I don't want to read them over everybody <laughs> I want to read them over people this morning who, like me, feel that God might be calling them. Every discipline, this is every discipline, to be that one person who begins to change the flow of things. Even if you're not yet in that job, before you get that job, maybe God is calling you to start that job for a different reason. Maybe the mission is bigger than you think. If I am speaking to you, would you be kind enough or courageous to join me by standing to the floor and I will read over us these words from the Holy Spirit. I'll wait. church listen to this dear friends I urge you to give your bodies to God let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will accept when you think of what he has done for you is that too much to ask 
Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing, in fact, how perfect His will for you really is. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. And you will receive a reward from Him. But remember this. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will be dependent on no one. But whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him.